Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. As many of you know, in June 2015, we had a team that left Roanoke, Virginia to go to San Diego, California to cycle across America. An adventure that was, would be accomplished in 30 days. And it's interesting, when, when I think back on that trip, I think back to the state of Texas. How Texas, if you haven't figured it out yet, is a pretty big state. <laughs> and as we cycled 30 days across America, I found it interesting that we cycled 11 of those days in Texas. We spent mile after mile after mile in Texas. The heat of the sun in Texas. The, the bumpy roads and potholes filled Highway 90 across the state of Texas. Along the way in the state of Texas, we came to a, 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 a large a large mountainous territory. And in this territory, we went up and down these regions. We would go up the steep inclines, and then we would go zooming down the steep declines. And I remember in this large state property that we came to this one hill, and we finally got to the top, and we zoomed down, and, and our minds were focused on a bridge at the bottom of the hill. And the closer we got to the bridge the more we saw that there was water overtaking the bridge. And as we began to slowly cycle across the bridge, our tires, our wheels were halfway underwater. And my mind was, was racing, thinking that these, this body of water was going to sweep us away. Thankfully, it did not. And then my mind began to think that i got to go in a straight line or I'm going to slip and fall. And my mind was so, our minds were so focused on that bridge and the water overtaking the bridge in this state park that, that we lost sight of the hill that was right on the other side. It was super steep. And as soon as we entered that, that climb, we were in the big chain, the big gears, and we had to rapidly get to the very small gear. And I share that story to say this, that that bridge connected one side of the road to the other side of the road. And as we come to Hebrews chapter 7, I want you to understand this, that a priest's responsibility in the Old Testament was a bridge to connect the earthly child of God with their heavenly father God. A priest's responsibility was to help make access for the individual on this earth to be able to freely have fellowship with God. As we come to this section of Hebrews chapter 7, we understand that the writer of Hebrews is writing and he begins his discussion about this Old Testament character by the name of Melchizedek, which, by the way, is mentioned in the book of Genesis chapter 14, just three verses. One verse in Psalm 110, and here in chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Hebrews he's mentioned. But before we dive into here, really the key thought I want to share with you from this, these 10 verses about Melchizedek's life, how we see he's a typology of Jesus Christ. Here's what I wrote down I want you to walk away with. Jesus Christ is the true king of righteousness. Jesus Christ is the true king of righteousness. Now that being said, 
Here's some fun facts about Melchizedek. He is only mentioned in three books of the Bibles I shared. Even though he's mentioned in two books of the Old Testament and one book of the New Testament, the New Testament speaks more about this character than the Old Testament combined. In chapters 5, 6, and 7 here in Hebrews. Melchizedek was a contemporary of Abraham. That just simply means he lived in the day and age when Abraham lived in Genesis 14. Melchizedek has no recorded family. Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek gave a blessing at least one time to Abraham that we record, that's recorded in Scripture. He was the king of Salem, and that region of territory will be later known as Jerusalem itself. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. The order of Melchizedek was royal and everlasting, and he is known as being greater than Abraham and Aaron. As we read the book of Hebrews, we understand that the theme of this book is the superiority of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is superior than everything in the Old Testament has to offer. Greater than the law. Greater than the prophets. Greater than, than Aaron. Greater than Joshua. Greater than David. Greater than Abraham. And here we see that Melchizedek was a type and figure to portray that his priestly duties was greater than Aaron's and his seen of being a patriarch or a leader or a king, if you will, was greater than the leader and patriarch of Abraham. All of his life is simply a picture of the greatest king, the greatest priest, and the greatest prophet to come, and that is the one and only Jesus Christ. So today I submit to you the key statement and the key thought for today's message is this. Jesus Christ is the true king of righteousness. He is. He always has been the greatest king. He always has been the greatest priest. And he always will be the greatest king and the greatest priest. Now as we come to this passage of scripture, I've asked myself this question. And I want to ask you today. Why is Jesus the true king? There's a lot of kings in this world right now. And that has ever existed and will exist. But why is Jesus set apart from the rest? Well, today I want to share with you five reasons why I believe Jesus Christ is the true king and the greatest king and the greatest priest of all time. Today I want to draw your attention to verse number one. The first reason is found in this verse. And here's what I wrote down. Jesus Christ is the true king because... His priesthood is universal. Jesus Christ is the true king because his priesthood is universal. Just for a few moments, let's talk about this scene that the writer of Hebrews is recalling in, in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 1. In fact, if you got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 14. And the writer of Hebrews here in this one simple verse is recalling and summarizing the three verses that Moses wrote in the book of Genesis by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in, in Genesis 14, verses 18, 19, and 20, the Bible says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, now this is the time when Abraham, Abram, the Bible records his name, in Genesis 14 is Abram. Abram went off to battle, and the, 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 this... This scene where all these other kings were in battle. And as he comes back from that battle scene, he's introduced to this guy by the name of Melchizedek. And here in verse 18, the Bible says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Notice that phrase. That is a very important phrase. 
Verse 19 says that he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heavens and earth, or heaven and earth. And then verse 20, And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. Then if you got your Bibles, you can turn over to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, and we see one verse... David is writing the psalm, and this psalm is a messianic psalm, revealing some great truths about the Messiah that is to come. And in correlation of, of David writing a song and prayer to God, he is delivering a prophetic message in this psalm. And in verse number four, he calls back to Melchizedek and speaks about how Melchizedek is like Jesus Christ. And it says, the Lord has sworn and will not repent. This means that he made an oath and he will not change his mind about this oath. And it says, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Speaking about how Jesus is an eternal priest. Kind of similar to the readings we read about Melchizedek. Now, as we read about Melchizedek, we see that he is a king, but also a priest. When we think about the priesthood and the, the Levitical laws about those who had received that gift and calling in the Levite tribe, we understand that Aaron was the first one who was raised up in that system. Melchizedek was before all this. And Melchizedek is, 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 is seen here as a king of not Jewish people, but Gentiles. And Aaron's priesthood and responsibilities was national. That is, Aaron was called by God to be priest on behalf of the nation of Israel. And it was for them and them only. That is, of course, we understand that the Old Testament says that they were to go into the, to the world and to share the good news of Jehovah God. And the term Jehovah God is a term that is used for the people of Israel because that is a name that they knew him intimately as. The Gentiles did not know him that way. And so as we read the Old Testament Genesis account and we read that the writer of Hebrews is recalling, he specifically uses the term the Most High God to signify that Melchizedek was a Gentile king and his, his priesthood was international. Whereas, whereas Aaron's was national. And now as we look into the Son of God and Jesus Christ, what was his? What is his? priesthood responsibility. That is, it is universal. That is, anybody can go to him and have him as their high priest and priest. Verse number one of chapter seven says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Jesus Christ, he is the true king because he is, his priesthood is universal. You don't have to be Catholic to go to this guy. You don't have to be Jewish to go to this guy. You don't have to be Gentile. You don't have to be Baptist, Protestant, Pentecostal, whatever. You can go to this guy named Jesus because his priesthood is universal. He has made a direct access way so that any person who calls out to him can go to him. You see, this, this, it's universal in the standpoint that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for sins once and for all. When we think about any type of sin, I'm talking about a little white lie that, our, that we have said, all the way to the vilest crime mankind could ever do. We understand this, that Jesus paid for all of those sins. And so that this priesthood, it is universal in the standpoint that anybody can go to him. Man, woman, boy, or girl. Anybody can lift up their voice and say, God, I am sorry. I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. 
This priesthood is not limited to the Jewish culture. This priesthood is not limited to the Gentile nations. It is for all Jews and all Gentiles who call out to him for salvation. We understand the Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon his name shall be saved. May I ask you this question? Have you called out to this most high God to be your priest, to be your high priest, there to intercede between God the Father and humanity? There is no earthly being that's able to do that apart from Jesus Christ. And here we see that his priesthood is universal. Melchizedek's priesthood was international. Jesus's is universal. May I share with you secondly, the second reason today? Why is Jesus the true king? Well, first of all, we took note from verse number one, and specifying the most high God, that his priesthood is universal. But let me share with you secondly as I read not only verse 1, but also verse 2. In fact, as we share these, I'm sharing with you five reasons, and all of them are coming from verses 1 through 3. And then we'll unpack the last few verses at the end. But look at verses 1 and 2. As I read these verses, I wrote down the second reason why Jesus is king, and he's true king. I said this, Jesus Christ is the true king because his priesthood is royal. His priesthood is royal. Not just universal, but it is royal. We see that Melchizedek, by the way, in the Old Testament, when you would have a priest, it was very, very, very unlikely. In fact, it, re- it didn't really ever happen. In fact, if it did, it was an exception. That for a priest to also be a king, it was very rare. It was not supposed to be like that on a general basis. And so we see that Melchizedek was not just a priest, but he's also a king. So his priesthood was royal because he was on the throne. Notice in verse number two, it says that, that Abraham gave a tenth part of all, speaking about the spoils, and we're going to come back to that in just a few moments. But for the time being, I want to focus on the other parts of this verse. It says, For being by interpretation king, check it out now, king of righteousness. After that, also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Three times, verse number two mentions he's a king. Of course, it's speaking about Melchizedek, but we understand that his life is pointing us to the greatest life, Jesus. Jesus' kingship is royal. Jesus' priesthood is royal. Can you just imagine with me? Imagine any king. They're sitting on their throne. You know, they had the throne chair like we normally have out here, pre-COVID. They have the throne chair where the king sits there and has his rod and his staff and he has his crown and his royal attire. The amount of royalty in England or any other monarchy or any system of government in this world does not compare to the royalty found in Jesus Christ. You can have the greatest amount of diamonds and jewels on that crown and it would not compare to the great royalty on Jesus Christ's garments and his royal kingdom. He is the king of Salem. That is, he is the king of Jerusalem. He is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. But I wonder, yes, he is sitting on his heavenly throne right now, ruling and reigning, but is he ruling and reigning in your heart this very day? Has his kingship reached through your heart today? I like as that one songwriter said, let the king of my heart, we need to let Jesus Christ be the king that is in our hearts. And let me just share this with you, may I? May I just share with you this, this moment that no matter who's sitting in that, uh, that Oval Office of the United States of America, they do not compare to the royalty found in Jesus Christ. Amen. Only Jesus can fix the world's problems. Right. 
Because he is the king of kings, and he is the king of Salem. He is the king of righteousness, and he is the king of peace. It's interesting. Have you ever thought to wonder, why is he the king of righteousness and the king of peace? Somebody who's righteous has a law and demands people to abide by that law, or they are gone. But also, he's peace. That leads me to the next thought today. The third reason why Jesus is the true king and about his priestly duties. I wrote down this. Jesus Christ is third of all the true king because his priesthood is righteous and peaceful. Jesus Christ is the true king because his priesthood is righteous and peaceful. Notice here in verse number two, it speaks about how this king is a king of righteousness. God has given us a law. And he has issued that law through his word called the Bible. And we believe that this book is a righteous book. It literally means just. That this book is the most just book in the world. It teaches us, excuse me, it teaches us right from wrong. It teaches us how to live according to God's ways. And And a king would come and establish decrees in their land and in their kingdom, and issue laws. And if you did not abide by those laws, you're dead, or you go to jail. God declares his kingdom, those who inhabit his kingdom, to be instruments of righteousness. We understand that the only way we can be made righteous is through the work of Christ on the cross. And that through believing by faith that he has come and, and clothed us with his righteousness. That is the only way we can be righteous. The Bible says that all of our righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags in his sight. And so if you want to be part of his kingdom, you've got to put on his righteousness. Our world is rapidly moving away from God. Our world is running far, far, far from the laws of God. In fact... They are confronting the kingdom of God in such a way that it is with great opposition and great hostility. But I want you to know this. One day, Jesus will come and he will bring judgment and righteousness to this world. In fact, the the more I read the headlines, the more I see all the news and see the social media mumbo-jumbo going around today, now I realize that that the day in which we live is setting up the stage for the future coming of the Antichrist and the tribulational period and the future coming of Jesus Christ to to establish His righteousness and His 1,000-year reign of peace. Which leads me to not only is His priesthood a righteous priesthood, but it is a peaceful priesthood. Check it out now. Yes, he is the king of Jerusalem. And it just simply means he is the king of peace. Shalom is the Jewish term. And we believe that Jesus Christ is the prince of peace and he can give us peace that passes all understanding. Our world is crying for peace. Our world is praying for peace to, God, for peace to gods that, they, that, that are not real. Then some are praying to the true God about peace. But we understand this, that peace will only come when Jesus established it here on this earth. We are called to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the Bible says. So let us continue to pray for that. But I want you to know this, that before you die, you have to have the peace of God in your hearts. Or you'll never have eternal peace in the afterlife. He is a righteous King, and he is a peaceful king, and only through him can we live righteously, and only through him can we live 
peaceably among all men. What did Paul say in Romans 12? He said, he said, live at peace with all men. The only way we can do that is through the work of Christ. Because there's times, listen, I'm human. Sometimes I don't like my fellow neighbor because of what they say. And the Bible says, love our neighbor. Only we can only do that through Christ's work on the cross and through him. Only can we distribute peace instead of war. Our world is too quick to shed blood. Whereas Jesus shed his blood so that our world could have peace through him. He is the true king. And now, I want to draw your attention beyond verses 1 and 2. And now I want to, I want to, I want to focus now on verse number 3. Why is Jesus the true king? Because his priesthood is universal. It's royal. It's righteous and peaceful. But fourthly today, I want to draw your attention to the last part of verse 3, and then we'll come back to the first part. Obviously, we understand that these verses are about Melchizedek, but ultimately pointing his life to typifying the life of Christ. And here the last phrase says, Abideth a priest continually. I wrote down fourthly. Jesus Christ is the true priest because his priesthood is personal. Jesus Christ is the true priest because his priesthood is personal. Understand me. Here it says, a priest continually. A priest's responsibility, the high priest's responsibility, was to go into the Holy of Holies, that place that he could only go into one time a year, and there he would place the blood on the mercy seat for his own sins to be atoned, and then for the sins of the entire congregation of Israel to be atoned. We do that year after year after year after year to do that. Why would he do that? For his own personal sins and for his own nation's personal sins. And today we need to understand this, that Jesus Christ is a personal God, and he wants a personal relationship with all of us, you and me and everybody in this world, everybody, every nation, every tribe, every language, he wants a personal relationship with them. And it's for that reason that Jesus Christ came and lived a personal life. And he died a personal death. And he rose a personal resurrection so that we could experience a personal, eternal life through him. But my question for you is this. Is he personally your priest? Is he personally your high priest? Is he the one who is waging war over your sin? That he did 2,000 years ago. When we think back of Aaron. He was a personal priest. To a personal body of people. When we think about Melchizedek. He was a personal priest. To a personal body of people. When we think about the priesthood. From, from Aaron all the way to Caiaphas. We understand that the priesthood in the New Testament. Is vastly different than the priesthood in the Old Testament. And now anybody who's a child of God. A, a born again child of God. Is now a priest. But now we understand that the only high priest. Is Jesus Christ. And he became the high priest. So that we could have a personal relationship with him. Do you have that personal relationship today? He's a priest. After the order of Melchizedek. The Bible says. But now I want to focus our attention now on really the point of verse 3 and share with you my fifth and final reason why Jesus Christ is the true king. Jesus Christ is the true king because his priesthood is eternal. Jesus Christ is the true king because his priesthood is eternal. Verse number 3 is, is I guess, if you will, the obituary for Melchizedek. It is. 
the New Testament commentary that summarizes the life of Melchizedek. And here's what it says. He was without father. He was without mother. He was without descent. He was having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now check it out now. But made like unto the Son of God. Abideth a priest continually. It's interesting. Some commentators and some theologians will come to verse number 3 and they'll use this verse in support to say that Melchizedek was a theophany or Christophany. That is a bodily manifestation of, of, of God or Christ himself in the flesh before the virgin birth. I want you to know this, that, that his life is... That's not the point here. Because in verse number 4, it's interesting. The reason, here's, here's one of the many reasons why he's not a theophany. It's because in verse number 4, the writer of Hebrews calls Melchizedek a man. It's just the point that the writer of Hebrews is pointing here, and the point that, that Genesis in Psalm 110 is making, is that they're using, they're using this life. God in his sovereignty and in his, in his, in his divine inspiration of the scriptures is using this character to be a great typology of himself and his own son. And here, if I could just explain it this way, that the writer of Hebrews is saying that, that Melchizedek, had no recorded father in Scripture. Melchizedek had no recorded mother in Scripture. Melchizedek had no recorded genealogical record or descent in Scripture. Melchizedek had no, no beginning of time in Scripture, that he had no birth date in Scripture. And then here it says, not end of life, so Melchizedek had no end of life recorded in Scripture. So in other words, the writer of Hebrews is simply saying this, that Melchizedek's beginning of days was not recorded. Melchizedek's ending of days was not recorded. His beginning of his kingdom... His ending was not recorded. His earthly mother, his earthly father was not recorded, and his genealogy was not recorded because his life is to symbolize the life of Christ. Because Jesus Christ is eternal. Jesus always was, always is, and always will be. Jesus never had a beginning, and he never has an ending. In fact, when Jesus was born of a virgin 2,000 years ago in the stable in Bethlehem, that was not the beginning of his days because he is called the Ancient of Days. That was his beginning of his 33 years on this earth. That's all that was. And yes, his time on this earth had an ending and a beginning, but he himself is eternal. No beginning, no ending. And so here we understand that, that here in, in, in the verse 3, it goes on to say, Abide the priest continually, that, that the work of Christ is similar to that of Melchizedek because, because Melchizedek's priesthood and kingdom has no beginning and ending recorded in Scripture. Jesus is Christ's priesthood and kingdom has no beginning, it has no ending. He forever reigns as king. He forever reigns as priest. And he forever reigns as prophet. A couple of years ago, I received a letter from the IRS. Not the letter I wanted to, to receive. <laughs> In fact, if you ever receive a letter from the IRS, you better, you better take note of it and, and respond right away. But the letter that the IRS sent me was involved my taxes. <laughs> and, and in the letter it said that, that I did not prove that I had a 1095A form. For those of you who don't understand what that is, there's different levels of salaries in the United States of America. And for those who, who are in certain brackets of the salary, they qualify for certain um, assistance with health insurance. And this form is, is a form proving that that amount of money and the assistance that the government is going to help. And they said that because I didn't prove that form and show that form, I was liable to pay back every penny they assisted me in. So I contacted my CPA, and right away I found that form and sent it in. Why would I ever pay my taxes, though? 
Because it's the law. It's the law to pay my taxes. Right? It is the law to pay the taxes. In fact, Jesus said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Now, it's interesting. When we come to this passage of Scripture, these first ten verses, it mentions something that, that, that really only a couple other times is mentioned here. And so here's my question for us. Why would I pay taxes? Well, because God has call, commanded us to do that. And then check it out. Why would I ever give to the Lord's work? Well, because God has commanded us to give to the Lord's work. And here in this passage, it's very interesting that tithing is specifically mentioned here the only time in the epistles of the New Testament. Then the only other time it's mentioned in the New Testament is when Jesus speaks about tithing and he speaks about it in a negative connotation to the scribes and Pharisees, how they were tithing of the spices, but their hearts were far from him. And then one other instance in, in the Gospel of Luke, if my memory serves me correct, where one individual spoke about how he was giving tithes. It is very interesting that, that here the character Abraham brought his tithes, his spoils of all, not just finances, to Melchizedek. Now that was before the Levitical law system of the tithe. And notice it was 10%. Now, when you begin to study the Levitical law system about tithing, I, I find it very interesting that, that if you really want to be a tither and you want to practice what the Old Testament gives in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, then you would have to give 33.3% of all your income to the Lord's work. That's what they did in the Old Testament. Here in this passage, it is revealing to us that here, that, 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 that now verse number four, the Bible says that speaking about this man, now Melchizedek, and then about Abraham, how Abraham brought a tenth of all the spoils. That is everything he owned. He brought a 10% that he had to give to Melchizedek. Why would he do that? Well, perhaps it was a law of that day requiring them to do that. Perhaps he felt like it was obligatory to give to that specific king and priest. Why would, the, why would the Old Testament Israelites, after the law, give to their tithes to the Old Testament system in, in the temple, in the synagogues? Well, because they were commanded to do that. And here in verse number 5, it says they were commanded to do this so the work of the ministry could go on and so that the Levites could have income and they could live on that. So when they would tithe of their crops and they would tithe of their income, they would tithe of all these things, they would bring it to there, and the priest there would live on those things. In the New Testament, I find it interesting that there is no specific commandment requiring us to give a certain percentage of income. It's not. It's not there. So why would, why would this be here in these first ten verses? Why would tithing be brought up here in the context of Melchizedek and Abraham and in the writer of Hebrews' mind? Well, I believe it's brought up here is because the, Melchizedek is a picture of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus and how a king owns the territory, is overseeing all that authority, and people bring to that king items in that system. Jesus is the king of, of this world. He's the king of the earth. And so he owns it all. And so we are called to give God ownership over everything that we own, not just a percentage. In verse number 5, it speaks about the system there with the priesthood and the tithes. And then it continues that discussion in verse 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 about Abraham and the context there with, with Melchizedek. And here, I want you to know this, that even though there is no specific requirement in the New Testament about a percentage that you have to give, the Bible commands us to give. And if you're not giving to God's work, you need to get right with God. 
The Bible commands us, give and it shall be given unto you. The Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. Jesus said, when you give alms, do not do it in secret. I mean, excuse me, not do it to do it in secret, not so that men can see. And then God will see that and reward you openly. So why would I pay my taxes? Because God's word commands it. Why would I give to the Lord's work and to the ministry? Because God commands it. Now, so why is 10% mentioned today in Baptist churches? Well, because, because sometimes people misunderstand some of these things, but then sometimes it's a standard that is set. So I submit to you, if you don't know how much to give, a good starting point would be 10% of your income to give to the Lord's work. But understand this, that the car you're driving, it is God's. Understand that the house you're living, it is God's. Understand this, the wallet you have in your pocket or your purse, that is God's. Everything you own is God's. Your savings account, your checking account, your investment accounts, your retirement accounts, everything is God's. And so we're required to say, God, what would you have me to give? So the whole debate between the tither and the grace giver. I lean to the grace giver. That is, there, since there's no New Testament command about what percentage we are commanded to give, that we are called to say, God, we give you everything because you've already given it to us. Now, what would you have for me to give? And so today it's the reality check that God already owns everything, the cattle of the thousand hills, and that we are required to give to God's work of the Lord so that the gospel can continue to proclaim so that we can continue to march forward the word of God into this darkened world. And because Jesus Christ has commanded it. Why is Jesus the true king? Well, because his priesthood is eternal. Hey, it has no beginning, no ending. He is right now in this very moment waging war between humanity and God the Father. He is our mediator, our intercessor, and our high priest. His kingdom is righteous and peaceful, and only through him can we be righteous, and only through him can we have peace. And it is full of royalty. And it is universal. This priesthood, this ministry of the priesthood is open to all those who call upon him. Jesus Christ is the true king of righteousness. But my closing question is this. Is he your priest, king, and prophet. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith, 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.